Daniel Ellsberg. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. You have been a friend of mine for quite some time now. You are actually one of the very first people uh, after 2013 that, that I met in person and spent time with. You're very much an inspiration of mine. You're known for, for so many things. Of course, the Pentagon Papers, you're the source of, you are the author of many books, including uh, Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, and most recently, The Doomsday Machine, uh, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And most centrally to me, you were the subject of a 2009 documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, about what you did back during the Vietnam War, uh, which I was watching when I was grappling with my decision to come forward back in 2012, 2013. Uh, so I have to say that you were and are quite literally an inspiration to me. Your example changed my life, and I would like to think changed the course of history for our country for the better. So thank you for coming to speak with me today. Well, that couldn't be more gratifying to me, Ed, because I've not only known you as a friend that I respect very much, but to hear the feedback here that what I did actually had an influence on someone to affect their life and what they did is something that I very rarely heard, actually, in terms of doing pretty much what I did, which was to put out a great deal of material, not just a page or two or a document, but uh, in my case, 7,000 pages. I waited a long time. Chelsea Manning and uh, then Bradley Manning at 19 in 2010, 39 years after the Pentagon Papers, was the first person to use the digital era to put out a lot of material. And then three years later, you put out even more about a tremendous violation of our constitutional system here in this universal surveillance. And I was very happy to hear that, uh, and didn't, uh, didn't assume it at all, that it was the case that I had had some influence over that. It's, it's very heartwarming for me. In my case, by the way, I would not have done what I did, which I did assume would subject me to life in prison if they prosecuted me, and they almost surely would do that. I wouldn't have thought of doing that uh, without the example of thousands of young Americans at that time, uh, almost uniquely maybe in any country's history, I'm not sure, but thousands of Americans who chose to go to prison rather than cooperate with the draft in a war they thought was wrong. And they were doing that at a time when I'd come to realize after two years in Vietnam and after participating in the escalation of the war in Vietnam, I saw it as wrong just as they did, and it put in my mind the question of what should I do now? So the, the thought that facing that question and acting on it can put that same question in the minds of other people, I think is very good because we need more whistleblowing. And uh, no one, of course, has done that more than you. Uh, there's so many questions I, I want to ask you. We have a uh, sort of limited time here. It's amazing when you've worked in the government, uh, you've been forced to sign all these non-disclosure agreements, uh, and made to believe that you'll never be able to speak to somebody ever again, uh, certainly not legally, who truly understands what you've been through. But there's an increasing cohort, I think, of Americans uh, that, that you represent, Thomas Drake, a Chelsea Manning, uh, Daniel Hale, a reality winner. More whistleblowers are coming forward, and you know they are limited by the system um, as much as the government can. And I, I think there's the question that, that needs to be asked there. You're sitting at the desk. You see a war that, you know, uh, is being prolonged. Um, what is the objective 
Is it worth it? And we're told that you, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, have no place to make those kind of decisions. Uh, but it's for the Congress. It's for the president. It's for uh, the official bureaucracy that allegedly represents us through our elections, which we know are, are totally fair and not gerrymandered or influenced uh, by poor laws at all. But the idea here is that there are people that are supposed to make those decisions, and it's not you. But you made this decision, and history seems to think that you made the, the right decision. How do you reconcile that? Fourth of July that we celebrate now is the announcement not only of independence from Britain, but a change in the government in which the the king is not the sovereign anymore and doesn't determine by himself uh, or in a few, like Elizabeth herself, when you go to war and how you pursue it and uh, how, how long it goes on and everything else. Actually, our Article 1, Section 8 doesn't say that uh, Congress shares that power. It says Congress has that power. It's not an unshared power of deciding whether you go to war or not. And obviously, that has <laughs> we never declare war anymore, in the right. last 50 years. Yeah, so Section 18 uh, is, is almost a dead letter at this point. But the another point, though, was the First Amendment the, that I said that we have, that British don't have, freedom that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Now, let me make an analogy here that just came to my mind on the 4th of July. There's a famous speech by Frederick Dulles, a former slave in 1858. Slavery is still on. What to the slave means the 4th of July, he said on the 4th of July. He was an escaped slave himself, pointing out that the existence of slavery was totally antithetical to the basic notion of the Declaration of Independence that we were celebrating on the 4th of July, all men are created equal. What could be more opposed to that notion than four million people being the property of other Americans, of white Americans? And he pointed out that tremendous discrepancy. Well, it just occurs to me now, to use the Espionage Act, which was initially intended against spies who give secretly information to a foreign government in order to harm them or advantage them, especially in time of war. But the wording of the, two, of the 1917 Act, especially as amended in 1950, a very anti-communist uh, McCarthyite period, allowed it. The, the general language criminalizes actions such as you and I did, but any kind of leaking for the purpose of public benefit not for a foreign power, but for patriotic reasons. Uh, keep the government from doing something terribly dangerous, uh, costly, reckless, criminal. So I think it could be said on this 4th of July, the Espionage Act so applied and so interpreted against leaks that are intended to benefit the public and, and so accepted by a jury uh, can recognize this, is as antithetical to the First Amendment, the freedom of speech and the press, as the existence of slavery was antithetical on the 4th of July to the Declaration of Independence and the equality of all humans. Uh, it's a, a total contradiction. And it strikes at the very notion of democracy. Not only slaves could not vote uh, in 1858 or somewhat later, free blacks could not vote in nearly any state in the Union. And of course, women could not vote so the idea of democracy 
uh, here hadn't been achieved yet very much. And over time, we have uh, we've in enlarged that electorate very greatly. Uh, right now, the Republicans are trying to constrict it again, like the generation, the uh, century of Jim Crow in the South after the Civil War, which uh, essentially tried to exclude or restrict black voting in the South. And the Republicans are moving uh, back on that now. But again, as I said, it's ironic on the 4th of July, we have to be recognizing not only what the ideals were that were put forward in that Declaration of Independence, but how far we are from actually uh, doing it. And what I was, you say, why did I uh, take it on myself at this time? It was uh, very clear to me that the public did not know that it had not been a matter either of public sovereignty or congressional informed consent or decision to be pursuing that war, to be conducting that war, and especially to be moving toward enlarging that war, which almost nobody recognized was happening. I had special knowledge on that because I was not only told by the deputy to Henry Kissinger, Lord Helfman, that this was what Nixon was planning, but I believed it because I had read uh, there were only three of us at that time who had read this 7,000 page study of our decision making from 45 to 68 and could believe that a president was deceiving the public as much as they all had. And Nixon was still doing, as Moore told me, he told other people on a top secret basis, which and I had clearance at that time, uh, what Nixon's plan was. And no one believed him, that he really could be threatening nuclear war a year after the Tet Offensive had shown that the war was not winnable. Now, what I did has been misunderstood or is still not understood, and that's not so important. But the policy I was opposing is still not understood, which is important because we are still enacting it in various parts of the world. And that was this. Many people have said that the lesson of the Pentagon Papers was first that the government lied. Well, <laughs> sure. okay. Uh, I, that's not why I put it out, because I'd known that from the first day I worked in the government, when I heard a lot of lies and I heard them the next day. If you can't stand lying, you can't work for the executive branch for very long. And true, the public didn't know that on the whole, but that was not news. and It was not shared only by me. Second, everybody says the papers showed the war was not winnable. That's the thing you see over and over again. And it really gets under my skin because it has nothing to do with my motives or what the problem was at that point. 5,000 people went to jail and I risked it myself. Not one of us did it because we thought the war was not winnable. Everybody knew the war was not winnable by that time, by 68 and 69. There was hardly anybody who thought the war was winnable except Richard Nixon. And I knew that he thought it was, uh, crazily, crazily, and pursuing a policy that was going to expand the war and not only continue it, not for one or two years, but for eight years at least, and get larger, larger in the air, with probably bringing the Chinese in and eventually using nuclear weapons, which I knew he was considering as early as 1969. The people who went to prison did it not, of course, in the belief that the war was not winnable, but because it was wrong. And in my case, I realized by the end, not only was it wrong, it had been wrong, 
but it was going on and getting right. bigger, which people didn't realize and still don't realize till this day because they, they didn't want to hear it. Uh, they don't like to believe that they've been fooled. They don't like to believe it, especially about the current president. As I say, I think when I joined the Marines, and I let me guess, when you joined the special forces, you believe the president pretty much, right? But we don't, we're not that naive, right? <laughs> I was pretty <laughs> naive when I signed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was naive enough at the time when I joined the Marines. By the way, uh, Korea, which is when I joined, was actually not uh, so clearly an unjust war at that point on our side. There was what could be called it was a species of aggression going on, despite the fact that it was one country. Uh, that was not the case in Vietnam. That was not a just war from the beginning. Let me ask you something. Uh, Ed. I'm sure when you joined the special forces during Iraq, you believed uh, that the president was right in saying this was a necessary, justified war. Uh, what if, how would you look at it now in a sense, if you had known then what you know now, would you have joined? Oh, certainly not. In, in my book, I, I wrote about this. One of the things that, that's tremendously disillusioning for a young man who is a true believer, it, it's not really faith in the president um, so much as the faith in the whole of government, faith in the institution of government. That, yes, you know, we know politicians lie. Yes, we know there's deception. Yes, we know uh, there, there's politicking being done. Uh, but on the whole... Uh, you don't believe you're being deceived by the whole of government. And in fact, uh, we very often are. And for nothing more than political advantage, transient advantages, uh, the smallest little victories uh, for a party uh, or a person rather than for the nation itself. We have um, really a, a pandemic of short-term thinking. But to, to see that, when you've really said, look, I'm, I'm willing to put my life on the line in its service, of a greater ideal. And to see that all the guys at the top, all the guys that are actually in charge, like they would laugh at you if they knew that you actually believed that. If, yeah. And that is, I, I think, it, it, it's more than insulting. Uh, but when you are young and you do believe, honestly, your innocence, uh, your good faith, uh, is a kind of armor uh, against the badness of the world. But it does reshape you. You do learn from it. Um, and for me, it really did change. It, it was very interesting hearing you talk about, you know, you weren't bringing the Pentagon Papers forward because they said the government lied. It was because you identified a trend that if something didn't change, things would get worse. And that, that I feel very strongly. That people look at 2013, the revelations of mass surveillance, and they think, I was motivated by an opposition to surveillance. And of course, I was opposed to mass surveillance. However, the thing that brought me forward in 2013 wasn't surveillance. It was the idea of a democracy that was controlled by the people and that we were losing that. The government was making decisions that reshaped the boundaries of our rights without our knowledge or consent, without even members of Congress uh, the whole body of Congress knowing what was going on. The only people who knew about this were the so-called Gang of Eight, right? Uh, the most senior and the most corrupt members of uh, each party in each house. And the idea to me that you could reinterpret the Constitution through a secret rubber stamp court that redefined terms like what is reasonable, 
And this could go on for, for decades. That to me was more than alarming. It was radicalizing. Because if we lose our ability to go to the courts and challenge the constitutionality of the government's actions, because the government can simply just say it's secret and you can't prove that it's happening, how can it be said uh, that we are partner to government rather than merely subject to it? The government begins to act independently outside of our control and we have no recourse. That was the trend that I saw getting worse. And although I hate to say it, when you look at the Bush presidency, uh, uh, the continuation of many of those policies under Obama, when you look at the transformation and expansion of those policies under Trump, I think we do have a problem in the United States where the government is becoming less accountable to the people. At the same time, we are becoming more accountable to them. You know, we both are extremely lucky in many ways because it could have gone very differently for either of us, and I could still be in prison. And uh, you, obviously, if you'd been uh, in Hong Kong, if you'd been turned over, for example, certainly I know that there were plans at one point to kill me, and uh, I think you were subject to similar risks and still are. So why did we do that? And it wasn't, on the one hand, just to improve a sense of history of something that was no longer going on, and it wasn't to get punishment, I would say, in my part, to hold accountability in the sense of actually punishing people for having lied in the past. It had to do with what the lies were about and where it was going and what was happening in the country and what was threatening to us. Now, what Senator Frank Church said in the first hearings in Congress on the National Security Agency, the only really adequate hearings, because the intelligence committees uh, that came out of the uh, investigations of Church and others in the mid-70s have been co-opted to a point, and certainly they're a black hole in terms of information. We get very little out of them in terms of what these uh, agencies are doing. And I, I believe very little oversight. But what Church said at the time was this. In the need to develop a capacity to know what potential enemies are doing, the United States government has perfected a technological capability that enables us to monitor the messages that go through the air. At the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people. And no American would have any privacy left, such as the capability to monitor everything, telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter. There would be no place to hide. If this government ever became a tyranny, if a dictator ever took charge in this country, the technological capacity that the intelligence community has given the government could enable it to impose total tyranny. And there would be no way to fight back. That's the abyss from which there is no return. Now, we have crossed over that abyss. And you, uh, more than anyone, proved that by breaking your promise to keep certain secrets the way I broke my promises to keep certain secrets and informed us that contrary to the Constitution, domestic law, and the president's own face-to-face -face assurances, for example, no hearing of Americans without a warrant, a lie by George W. Bush uh, before his election in 2004, revealing that that secrecy had concealed not just lies, but crimes and unconstitutional behavior. The question is, was Frank Church wrong 
that that is an abyss from which there is no return. Is there a return from it? I ask you it. What does it mean when you have uh, the freedom of speech, but anything that you say is constantly recorded and it's stored in perpetuity, uh, not because you're under a particular suspicion, not because you're being investigated, but simply because it's easy, simply because it's cheap, simply because it's free. Uh, what does freedom of religion mean when everyone knows what religion you hold, how uh, carefully you abide by the tenets of that religion? Uh, what does the freedom of the press mean when everything that you ever click on, every article that you have ever read, uh, becomes a part of your permanent record that's constantly being updated and, in, 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 and indexed? And in that moment after, where everything that you've done throughout your entire life suddenly becomes of interest to someone. Maybe it's the police. Maybe it's a larger organ of the state. Maybe it's simply a corporation, and it is now there on request. And they go, ooh, Daniel Ellsberg, this is who you are. Ooh, dear listener, this is who you are. This is what you just did. This is who you love. This is what you care about. This is what you buy. This is where you go. This is everyone that you've ever known and everything that you've ever thought about. And I don't like what it is that you're doing, and I'm going to change that. Now, you don't know anything about them. You don't even know that this has happened. What can you do about it? I think that fundamentally uh, represents the danger of what has been happening uh, since 9-11, which is the reallocation of power away from the individual in our, our, our grand civil bargain here, the, the idea that we have private citizens where nothing is known about us because we wield very little power in society. And on the other side, there are these public officials where we know everything about them because their decisions are consequential. Public figures, you know, the CEO of Amazon. You don't know anything about what Jeff Bezos does, where he goes, what he spends his time with, unless he makes a mistake or, you know, he wants you to know about it. And so he has the press, uh, you know, stand up and dance and play his little tune. Um, but today we are being made increasingly to live naked before power. At the same time, our own protections uh, or our own uh, sort of ability to monitor their doings uh, are taken away from us. Can we be said to control our government, to control our democracy, even with all of the pageantry of you know, free and fair elections as they're you know, presumed to be, if our understanding of the government's actions is incomplete. If we don't know the most consequential decisions that they're making because they're classified or they're private or they're simply lying to us about what they are. Now, for me, that is a fundamental problem and the only way to resolve that is to have people in government who willfully limit, intentionally limit their own capability, their own privilege and power, uh, and ability to act without restraint, because they recognize the danger that they, in four years, could themselves be out of power. Uh, and I think this is one of the interesting things about the Donald Trump presidency. You saw uh, all of these uh, people who... Uh, previously had had no issue with these programs, with mass surveillance, with the, you know, foreign intelligence agencies, whatever, um, with domestic surveillance, suddenly become extremely concerned with it. And now that Trump is out of power and Biden's in power, we have seen the, the, the sides flip again. 
we see this utilitarian, reflexive thinking where they go, yes, this is a dangerous thing, yes, it's a problematic program, uh, yes, it's a terrible power, but as long as my hands are on the lever, it's okay. Uh, but when somebody else's hand is on that, that's a problem. The problem, my friends, is the existence of that lever. It's that we created that system. It's that we cannot see how that system is being operated. It's that we cannot see who is being targeted by it. And we are simply told to trust the operators. You know, It is a system that holds a gun to our head every day and says, it's okay, trust me. I'm not going to pull the trigger. We should not have to trust. How does this situation differ, let's say, from East Germany? And it does still. On the one hand, uh, the NSA has, has a surveillance capability that Stasi could only dream about if they had enormous imagination. The motto of the Stasi, as in the movie called The Lives of Others, to know everything. Well, NSA knows much more than they were able to, to imagine at that time. But the Stasi did go one step further. They acted on that daily. They brought people in for questioning. They intimidated them. They turned them into informers about bedside chats that weren't otherwise available or chats out in an open field by threatening people, if you don't tell us what was said in that thing, your children won't go to university. You won't keep your job. So it turned them into a nation of informers to a large extent, East Germany. That could happen here. It hasn't obviously yet happened. Your, your phrase is very apt, turnkey tyranny. It can change from one day to the other. They have the capability, not just for knowing, they have the, they have the knowing now, but they have the capability to use that for manipulation that makes a mockery of democracy indeed. And I think, by the way, a major terrorist uh, event in this country, uh, or even a war, would have a real possibility, more than a possibility, of turning that turnkey so that we became effectively a police state, which as a, to repeat, NSA has the infrastructure, the capability for a police state right now, but they haven't turned that key or we wouldn't be talking. Well, let me, let me contest that just a little bit because I, I think it's actually continuing. What we've seen is the key has begun to turn. It simply hasn't reached the end of the rotation. Uh, a lot of it happens invisibly. When you have this architecture, this system, the question is, how is it going to be used? Yeah, it's true. Every person who says, you know, I don't like the president isn't in a camp. But uh, we, we shouldn't be thanking our lucky stars. <laughs> I think you and I can thank our lucky stars. But what I'm saying is we don't have, it would be wrong to say, and this is not thanking our lucky stars, that we don't have, we're not East German at this point. But we could be. What I've understood since about 1960, 59, 60, 61, that's a long time ago, is that the president has a turnkey that he can turn and extinguish most human life on Earth. And he's not the only one. And by the way, he's not the only one that can turn on the U.S. doomsday machine. Uh, you know, there's been this delegation of authority and so forth. That's true in all the other nuclear states, almost surely. Almost surely, we know it's true of Russia. They cannot have their retaliatory power paralyzed by a single bomb on a capital city, but they've delegated that authority to others. To clarify that, because it's, it's a crucially important point. In Hollywood, we always see, you know, the president is carrying around the nuclear football. There's, 
this briefcase with this guy. They, uh, you know, unlock it with the key. They pull out the code words. They pick up the secure phone. And only then, you know, can the nuclear arsenal uh, be activated. But what you were saying, your experience actually on the inside of this is that because they're afraid of what happens if the president's limo gets blown up, what happens if the president's helicopter goes down, in fact, there are many fingers on many buttons in many silos all around the country, but not just in our country, in every country. These sort of dead hand systems are designed so that any individual commander can launch a nuclear strike effectively on their own say-so. Is that right? Well, we don't know about all the other cases. It has been revealed, and in fact, Putin has actually said that here, quote, dead hand machinery, or they call it perimeter, is being modernized and made all the more secure. Uh, I think we can assume that in, in Pakistan and India and other places, very, very unlikely that they would allow their capability for annihilating other people to be paralyzed by one strike or a few strikes on commanders. They've made arrangements almost surely, as we and Russia have, to assure that that capability persists. And the ability to escalate any such war means that between two nuclear states, like the U.S. and Russia now, or the U.S. and China, the likelihood of limiting a nuclear war in some degree is not impossible, but extremely unlikely, that it's very likely to lead to preemptive attacks, which in turn will burn enough cities to destroy most life on Earth. So it isn't a risk of extinction, as far as we know, uh, though it could be, but near extinction. And this is a power that would seem obvious that no human should have. And they do have it, just as, as to come back to the uh, Constitution, the surveillance issue, our presidents have the power to stop democracy from one day to the next, as you say, from turning that key much further. In fact, let me go to something that, uh, in the news right now. New revelations, just the last week or two, that Trump was using the FBI on the metadata, at least, the telephone conversation of who was speaking to who and when and so forth, even of members of Congress. Now, when I read that, I thought of you right away, and I thought, only the FBI was being abused that way? The words NSA did not come into that conversation. What would you, what would you think of in that connection? Was he refraining from using NSA? This was what I was uh, actually going to, to challenge you on when you were saying, uh, you know, we don't have a police state in the United States. or The turnkey tyranny has not begun. The reality is the NSA laughs at the Stasi. Stasi is like, you know, baby's first police state right. <laughs> um, in, in terms of capability. Uh, what we don't have is East German policy, uh, and that is meaningful. However, when you have the capability, exceptions for the use of that capability will grow over time, right? Imagine you've got, uh, you know, a, a magic lamp. But instead of three wishes, uh, the genie can come out at any time, you can get anything you want. But we go, oh, you know, we don't want to use that, we don't want to be irresponsible. But if there's a really important problem, uh, we'll pull the lamp out and we'll use it whenever. But what you find out is once you have a lamp, you begin to use it more and more. And you go, well, we only use it for limited purposes, we only use it in special exceptions. But those scenarios expand and they grow over time. And when you look at the architecture, uh, of mass surveillance beyond the NSA, right? Forget about a particular agency, forget about the FBI, forget about the CIA. And you start thinking about the fact, well, how does it work 
How does the NSA gather all of this information? Well, this information is supplied by your communications, by your movement. As you drive down the highway, your license plate is photographed by automatic sensors called automated number plate recognition or automated license plate recognition. It's then put into a computer that then sends those license plate numbers that it's seen to a central database. And now they know where every car is that's gone up and down this highway when it exited the highway. Uh, people put this outside of, you know, their gas station nowadays. Uh, you can buy these things. They're not that expensive. It is the phone that's in your pocket, what cell phone tower it is closest to. It knows when you become active in the morning and you first send web traffic because you check your email. It knows when you go to bed at night because you stop sending transmissions. It knows when you make a phone call. It knows when you begin to move, when you leave your home, when you get in the car, when you go to an office or a place of work or to visit a friend. And all of this is out there. Right? The, 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 the point that I'm making here is, okay, is it really true that it's not being used? Uh, and as you said, uh, Donald Trump used the FBI. And, you know, this is not Donald Trump directly. This is the Department of Justice and the FBI working together to go to the Internet companies and say, you need to turn over all of the information you have on this account, on this subscriber, on this phone number. And what do the Internet companies do? They go, okay, sure. Or sometimes, like I think is alleged in at least parts of these cases, uh, they'll push back and they'll challenge and go, we don't want to hand that over. And then the government has a real case on their hand where they got to decide, do we want to push these companies? Do we want to take this to court? Or is it not so important and we can just let it slide? And really the answer to that question is a political one. With Biden in charge, they'll let these cases go away, right? But with Trump in charge or a second term of Trump or whatever, uh, he would certainly use these to monitor. Barack Obama used these same authorities to investigate journalists for the same kind of leak investigations, where they go, oh, there's somebody out there who's talking. They're talking about classified things for political purposes to screw us in the news. Basically, look up that journalist's phone number and see everyone that contacted them. And this happened in the case of James Rosen. The idea here is that we know Donald Trump was not a great president, but is Donald Trump the only one willing to abuse these systems? Is Donald Trump the only one who is he alone will break the rules? No, of course not. As you said in Vietnam, the problem wasn't that one president did this. Uh, it was the fact that one president after another president after another president did it because it was to their shared political advantage. That's what surveillance is about. It is about protecting and expanding power. The question you have, is it the FBI alone that can do this? Technically, the answer, of course, is no, not at all. Legally, the FBI is the only one that's supposed to be doing this. But in the words of Kissinger, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional takes a little bit longer. Speaking of insane policies, let me bring you to our last question of the night. Uh, we haven't talked about Julian Assange the case against him, which is being appealed by Joe Biden and his administration through the Department of Justice. Well, Biden, Biden should, drop, should drop the appeal uh, on the judge's opinion in Britain that uh, Julian should not be extradited. And the Trump administration on almost its last day uh, appealed that decision uh, to a higher court in uh, Britain. We're still awaiting a judgment on that. But meanwhile, Biden had, of course, the ability to drop that appeal and did not. In fact, a Trump holdover in the Justice Department, uh, even before Merrick Garland was uh, confirmed, renewed that appeal. Well, of course, he should drop that appeal. And, you know, what I 
What I revealed last month, a month ago as we speak, is as indictable as anything that uh, Julian Assange revealed in 2010. It's obviously absurd to indict me as an American for putting out 50-year-old information of insane policy by the government that has been wrongly withheld all this time. And therefore, they may not do it. This is not a, they probably won't do it. This is not a case, I think, that they would be happy to argue in, in, uh, in public because it would, it would raise the, uh, the absurdity of the use of the Espionage Act. But what I'm saying is that uh, it's no less absurd in, these, in all these other cases. It is time to take a crack at getting, uh, challenging the Supreme Court to address these issues at last. This is, I do share with you, Ed, something, and with Chelsea Manning, I think, the following perception. This information needs to be put out. Nobody else is doing it or willing to do it. So I have to do it. So I'll do it. And that third step is should be taken more often. And I hope that people who hear this will be encouraged to go that third step and say, it is possible as a human being, and especially in, in the remnants of democracy that we still have here, to tell the truth. And that's a, a choice I can make, to say this is wrong. And given that, one can take that last step and say, therefore, since others won't do it, I'll do it. Daniel Ellsberg, it has been an honor to know you, to speak with you, and thank you so much for being with us on this Independence Day. <laughs> thank you, Ed.